Hello and welcome to The Politics of Peterborough, the podcast where we chat with the people who have been elected to make decisions about our city and those who try to influence them. I'm your host, Dave Adcock. Before we get into this episode's conversation, our January episode will be with ARU Principal Ross Renton. I said on the last episode that we would have already recorded the episode with him, so there was no need to send in your questions. However, we had to postpone the recording until December, so there's still time to get your questions in. Either send a tweet using the hashtag politicspeterborough, send a direct message on either Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email to politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. On with the show. Our guest for this episode is a development specialist having worked in both education and the museums industry. First elected to the council in 2019 as its second Green Councillor in the Autumn Waterville Ward, she became the group's leader in May of this year after Councillor Julie Stevenson left the group to sit as an independent. Councillor Nicola Day, welcome to the Politics of Peterborough. Hello, Dave. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So perhaps we can start just by finding out a bit about you and Peterborough. Um, were you born in the city or was it something else that brought you here? Um, I was born. I was born in Basildon, uh, but at four months old, my parents moved here. Actually, as kind of internal economic migrants, my dad got some work on the train lines at Balfour Beatty, electrifying the railways. So I moved to Orton Gold here with my parents at four months old. So I've never known. Um, any other city. So this is really my home city, apart from a little bit of work for about four or five years, six years, probably working up north um, in the museum sector. Um, I've, I've always been here and lived in Peterborough. Now, you first stood for election to the council back in 2012 uh, and then again in 2014. Um, but those were as a candidate for Labour. So what brought about your change to the Green Party? So I think part of it was I moved up north in 2014 to, to sorry yeah back in the 2014 to uh up to Northumberland in Annick and so so I, I removed myself from that local Labour Party which I've been very involved in I'd been their local campaign forum secretary I'd stood as a candidate um and I and I had written a blog prior to that which talked about you know we really need to be looking at green solutions and technology and that's what Labour should be focusing on but there wasn't much uptake with it in the party at that time and then I started to see green memes popping up with green policies on and it got me interested um Natalie Bennett was leader of the party at that time and I really like that message there's no environmental justice without social justice and that the two are combined and I think now we're really seeing particularly with the energy crisis why that is the case um, and I really liked that and I went onto the party's website it was really difficult decision to leave but I think leaving the Labour party in Peterborough and moving away from that group of people I think and then seeing sort of the greens with fresh eyes with the policies that they had i just could see that everything was a lot more thought out a lot more backed up um i did phone the party and have a chat with them with some of their policies before i joined it was a really tough decision to leave because i put quite a bit of work into the labor party but i realized that actually that the environmental crisis was so massive and really needed people behind it to sort of you know, try to work things out and to try to build solutions into our society that I, I I became a Green and I'm very much a Green now. I've actually been in the Greens longer now than I've ever been in Labour. Now, in 2015, you stood as the Green candidate for North West Cambridgeshire in the general election. Um, how did you find that experience? 
Uh, yeah, that was that was interesting. That was um, me as, as quite a new green standing. Um, it, it, it gave me a lot of development of all the policies. I understood, you know, I obviously had to read manifesto. So it really, um, it really submerged me into what green politics and what green policies uh, were about. I think I managed to raise the vote actually slightly, which I was quite pleased about. But I have to say there are nowhere near as many hustings and um, interviews for Northwest Cambridgeshire as there are in Peterborough because it's not such a marginal seat because the Tories have such a big majority. Although it's looking at the moment by the polls that that may not be the case come the next uh, general election. So it will be interesting. But yeah, it was good. Um, I think it was tiring. I, I worked really hard on it. Time we didn't have any green councillors, so there wasn't as much recognition in the city of the work that we could do and can do as greens. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to to stand, but it was a good experience in terms of um, completely submersing myself into green policy. Now, as I said in the introduction, uh, Councillor Stevenson left the green group after May's election. Did that come as a surprise? To be really honest, the year before we had had some inklings and she had suggested that she might not stand again. And obviously we said, you know, you know, it's entirely up to you what you do. And it's fine if, if, if people think that they've come to the end of the run of their political career or they want to do something different. Um, and I certainly, you know, suggested that, you know, as long as you let us know what's happening. And so it wasn't a complete surprise. It was a disappointment because we'd obviously backed the election campaign and financially funded it. And then it, it did feel a bit disappointing to then have, have lost her um, after all the work that we'd done together as a team. However, you know, people have career changes. They change their minds about things. Um, I was a little bit surprised when she said that, that she wanted to be an independent because the Greens don't, uh, they don't have a whip, so we can vote however we like, even if we don't all agree as a group. So it was interesting, some of the reasons given. But um, actually, you know, I accept that people change, they move forward and, and they want to do different things. And, and that's perfectly fine. But it might have been nice to have known that the year before when there was some suggestion that she might not want to stand again. And therefore, we could have said, OK, well, we'll put a green candidate in that wants to be a green candidate. Do you uh, expect that, um, I mean, I think it should be due for election, I think it's it'd be 2025 or 2026. Um, would you expect to put a candidate up against her if she's if she continues to stand as an independent? Uh, that's something that's open to negotiation, I expect, and it all depends on what uh, Councillor Stevenson wants to do at that point in her life. So, you know, that's something that I can't really comment on at this point. But obviously, clearly, as, as the Green Party, we want to expand and have as many councillors as we can it's you know when I became group leader when I actually sort of correct you from earlier I became group leader before she left it was about a few weeks before she left then she went away uh, for a month and then we got an email to say that she was leaving and resigning and it was a you know it was a really nice email to say thank you to everybody but you know as green as the green party obviously we want to expand our number of councillors we want to get more green policy through the council more motions through um so yeah, but that, I, I guess that is all up for negotiations, depending on what people's circumstances are and what our circumstances are. How have you found the change to, to becoming group leader? It's been good. I think I've been able to push the green agenda at the council in terms of our, you know, I'm now chair of the Climate Change and Environment Committee, which is a new committee that's been established based on some of the work that I did since I declared or helped to declare a climate emergency back in 2019. Um, I meet with this chief exec 
every month. So I pull up any issues that are of concerns to our residents and, and I'm able to put them in front of our chief chief exec. Um, I'm able to nurture and develop the talent that we've got within our current councillor base with Councillor Kirsty Knight and Councillor Heather Skibstead. I try to make sure they speak at most meetings and that they're really engaged and involved. Um, and the Greens actually don't agree in a hierarchical structure, but we know we have to have one. Uh, so we very much work very closely together. Um, and there's not often a week or a day goes by where I'm not speaking to my other Green councillors as a team almost every other day, if not every day. Uh, so we work really closely together and I'm trying to really develop that team. Um, so I actually really enjoy it. Um, and I think it probably links back to the fact that I'm a teacher as well. So I think those skills come into play when you're trying to develop and nurture a team and, and, and move it forward into a stronger position. Now, as you just mentioned, um, the number of Greens returned to three earlier this year after Councillor Heather Skibsey had defected from the Labour group. How does something like that happen? Are you sounding out opposition councillors or did she come to you? Um, no, that was very much Heather arranged to meet us not long after the last election. And she wanted to talk about how she felt that the values in the Labour Party don't really reflect what she believes anymore. And, you know, she I think she also spoke to some other parties, but she certainly spoke to us and she came back to us after we had a conversation. We were very honest with her. Um, in that conversation about what we could or couldn't do or maybe could do. And actually, um, it took quite a long process, actually. We had to go through quite a rigorous, uh, it's called a defection process, when someone defects from one party to another. Um, and we worked really, you know, really hard on that. Um, and then once she did defect, it was all announced within one day and all the media went out and that all happened at the council all, all in one day. Um, and now, actually, we're really pleased. She's a really hard-working councillor in Alton Longville. We're really pleased to have her on our team. I have to say it wasn't an easy defection process. We had to go through lots of hoops at the Greens because we don't just take anyone on without due process. Um, so, But, yeah, we're, we're really glad to have her on board. I'm enjoying working with her. And she actually, I think, feels like, you know, she's got a lot more freedom as a green councillor. She was already doing quite a lot of green work in her ward in terms of ecology and biodiversity. Um, and she just felt her values really aligned to us. But we don't go scouting. I mean, if we think there's an inkling from a councillor that they might be green or they won't want to be green, then obviously we might ask about that. But we never push and we never ask. It, it is more about people coming to us. Now, both yourself and Councillor Skibstead are up for re-election at the next local elections. How confident are you of retaining both seats? I would say that we're pretty confident in Autumn Waterville. Um, we're putting our regular newsletters out and we are doing meet-on-your-street sessions in both wards, which is uh, um, something that Heather's been used to doing um, as a uh, in, when she was a Labour candidate in the past. We're getting a positive response on the doorstep in both wards. I'd say Autumn Longville... It's not an easy ward to win for the Green Party, um, but we've got a sitting councillor there. We're putting a fully targeted campaign into it. Heather's out two or three, four times a week um, speaking to residents, and she's had a really good response. She possibly thinks a better response than when she was in Labour. So all remains to be seen. I'm not saying it's going to be easy in Autumn Longville. I think Autumn Waterville will be easier for us than Autumn Longville, but... Let's see. Who knows? I mean, and also we don't know what the Councillor Stevenson effect on leaving the Greens might have on us. So I'm certainly leaving no stone unturned in my ward either. Um, and we're making sure that we're visible and we're hardworking. And this is what people get when they elect Greens is people that are out on the streets, people that are visible, 
hardworking and that put the legwork in really uh, to get elected. Why do you think the green success in Waterville hasn't been replicated elsewhere in the city yet? Partly because we we have tried in Wittering, we came a good second, and I think that was a good result. Uh, but Wittering was a ward that was up once only every four years. Uh, Greens tend to do well over a sort of an 18-month, two-year targeted campaign period. Partly also we're a small party. Um, we don't often have a lot of candidates coming to us, so we often get candidates from community campaigns. We are going to be developing another ward this year alongside Waterville, Longville, and I'm not going to tell you what that ward is at the moment, but I'm sure that will come out quite soon. Uh, but it's about it's about it's a triangle for us. Greens have to work ten times harder than any other party because we don't get the national coverage that sorry it's certainly the main two parties, the Labour and Conservatives do. So we have to put um, a lot more effort in, a lot more targeting in, and a lot more work in to get to where we can get to. And what we need is a, a triangle of a, a candidate that's ready to put that work in award that we think is winnable and then a team behind that person and like a volunteer base but we are beginning to put that into another ward that's only developed over this year and sometimes it takes time to find the right person that's willing to do that but we are getting there and we you know the groundwork that we're laying now we hope will reap its rewards in you know two three years time now, sort of linking into to what you were just saying, the Green Party got their first MP in 2010. Five years later at the next general election, although they didn't gain any further MPs, the party did quadruple the number of votes that it received, getting over a million votes for the first time. However, in the two elections since then, the number of votes have dropped and the party's only managed to retain its deposit in 37 seats. What does the party need to do to be seen as a potential party of government and not just a single-issue protest party? Completely agree with you, and um, I think I think we very much campaign for proportional representation because, as you said, at one year we got a million votes, but only returned one MP. Um, and yes, uh, what we really need to do is, and what we are doing is, we are targeting some particular seats in the country where we feel, and we're really challenging now for that second and third MP, where we feel that we can gain in those areas. Now, Caroline's campaign in Brighton. Um, the Green Party at the time really did target Brighton and they pr threw pretty much everything but the kitchen sink at it and that's how they got it. Um, but it's about some of those areas, some of those seats, uh, there's some, and I won't list all their names, but there's some seats, a couple of, like three or four seats around the UK now that really could turn to green and it's really difficult to say. I really want to say and we'll do it this time. But every year when a general election comes around, I don't know whether people and, and I know people like our policies. They like us as a party. They like the way we do policy politics differently. But every year that comes around and I get really excited and think, yes, we're going to get our second and third MP, which is what we need. We need I mean, Caroline, right? She she works like a trooper and she is always often nominated as the best MP of the year. And we need more Carolines in, in government. Uh, but when, you know, so we are working on that with the first past the post system we have. But the first past the post system is really unfair for smaller parties. So you can get a million votes on one MP, whereas other parties can get much lower numbers of votes per MP because of the way that system is run in terms of geographical areas. So obviously the Greens are very much pushing for things like proportional representation through the Make Votes Matter campaign, because we know that actually in that year that you mentioned, I think 2015, we could have had, if we had proportional representation, we would have had about 18 MPs 
And that's the numbers really now, given the, the climate crisis and the energy crisis we see, we need that number of Greens. And I can tell you there are so many Greens that would make fantastic MPs that have got such knowledge, expertise. Some of them are academics, some of them are, are professionals in their work environment, uh, some of the community campaigners that have come through. And we really need those people in government absolutely at the moment. Do you think the main problem is that, uh, as you say, people like your policies and perhaps like the candidate that's being put up, but they, they look at the party and think, well, they're not going to win, so I'm going to put my vote to a person who I think can perhaps beat the Conservative if that's who it is that's local. Um, and that obviously results in, in not that, that or your candidate's not getting over the line. Yeah, absolutely. I th- we've got about 550 councillors across the UK. That's the highest number of councillors that we've ever had. In Bristol, we have about 24 councillors now. Um, so we are, and we and we are running about 14 councils. Uh, it's sometimes some, sometimes in collaboration with other parties. So we are becoming. Greens in Power, we have a Greens in Power group, for example, that are disseminating information to other Greens about what they're getting through their councils and, and all sorts, you know, motions and policies and things like that. Um, but, I, you know, I think once people see the number of councillors rise and realise that Greens are a force we reckon with, they are hardworking, they do come out in the community, they do engage um, and work on all those other issues, the environmental issues and everything, I think then they realise you know, people start to realise, yes, we can vote for a Green in the general election and they can get elected. But I think in terms of the general election and MP seats, we just need a couple more people to get through the door uh, and then, yes, it needs to be expanded. But, yeah, it it frustrates me the lack of media coverage we have. So Caroline Lucas was on Question Time a couple of weeks ago, but that, you know, that hadn't been for about a year we hadn't had a Green on. Uh, I remember when UKIP was in its ascendancy and Farage was always on TV. There was always someone on Question Time, and yet they don't have an MP. Um, and, And then you've got to question the motives of the press, really, you know, why are they giving this party so much coverage when they don't actually have an MP? So, you know, there's all sorts of dynamics involved in all of that. But, um, yeah, I'm hopeful for the next general election for the Greens. There's there's a number of really strong campaigns going on across the country where we are hopeful of gaining a few more MP seats. Just Stop Oil have undertaken a series of potentially destructive and disruptive protests over the last few weeks. Is that kind of protest which causes major disruption to people's daily lives necessary to highlight the issue of climate change? I'm in two minds about this. First of all, I I think that if you think about climate change and, and how terrible the impacts are going to be, um, in terms of flooding and heat waves and fires and and how you know what's going to roll out into the future, that actually part of me thinks well, and, and then if you also look at the environmental campaigners such as Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and how long people have been campaigning for on these issues and that no nothing has moved, the government has not really done enough to you know mitigate the abating effects of climate change that they're already that is already happening then I feel that sometimes I think, well, yeah, actually, if if you're going to block a motorway and it's going to make the press and it's going to make people think about it, then isn't that the only thing they can do? Because people aren't really listening. I mean, really, if people looked at what climate change was going to do to us, that should be front page news on the mainstream media all of the time. Um, And particularly what's going on in in the global south with Bangladesh, which are constantly being hit by climate disasters and countries 
you know, in the global south, and thing, and that is now happening here. And if you saw the horrific images, then maybe you would stop and think, but we, our press doesn't do that. And we don't see those things forefront and centre. And so that makes me understand why people would take these actions to get some attention, to get that coverage. So I do understand that. I also do see the view that, well, this isn't really helping. It's just turning me off, this idea. And there is a new movement that's come out of sort of XR, Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, which is called the Moderate Flank. And they're trying to do some work where it's work around communities and trade unions, where we're trying to bring people on board in a more moderate manner than blocking a motorway or closing a bridge in London. But I do think that protests like Extinction Rebellion, they move off to window, they put it into the media, positively or negatively, and whatever, however you might agree with that. There's been a lot of people campaigning for a long time uh, particularly the people that set Extinction Rebellion up, knew that to do this type of campaigning, to get people arrested, was the only way to get this issue highlighted. And it is such a crucial issue that it's going to affect the lives and deaths of many millions and thousands of people. We've seen a, a debate growing within the Conservative Party over the last couple of weeks with regards to onshore wind farms. Is it your view that we should be building more of those? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've, we've often tried to um, talk on on the climate change committee that I'm on, and it was a working group before that. Uh, we we did try to sort of talk to our local planners, and they they said that you know it's really difficult to get onshore um, wind being built and offshore. You know, um, we have to invest in renewables. We have to, one mistake that was made at COP27 was that whilst we said we would repatriate countries and you know that that were facing climate disasters we didn't commit to keeping fossil fuels in the ground we didn't commit to keep keeping coal and oil in the ground we only and absolutely we need to invest in renewables to be able to keep those fossil fuels in the ground and that's what we need to do to keep within our 1.5 paris agreement targets because you know we're already nearly hitting that that limit that we've set ourselves but we are projected at the moment to go into 2 to 2.7 or 2.8 degrees of warming which if you can see what's happening around the world already you know there's going to be catastrophe i would be very much any you know those few forms of renewable energy we must invest in absolutely Now, you said yourself uh, a moment ago that you, you chair the recently created Climate Change and Environment Scrutiny Committee. What's the purpose of such a committee on a local council? OK, so um, just can I give you a bit, a bit of a brief history of how that came about? In 2019, the first full council meeting I was first elected, I decided to try to get a uh, climate emergency declaration passed. Um, and I, I decided to meet with the group leaders and de their deputies. I also had people from Extinction Rebellion come around the table, a couple of people from there. And we and we had a chat about it and we talked about actions that I needed to do. And I sent everybody uh, an example, a template of, you know, what we needed to do as a city, how we declare a climate emergency. Um, and actually through those negotiations, we, we, we did do that. Council unanimous, unanimously agreed to declare a, a climate emergency. Um, and then after that, part of that declaration 
was that we would set up a climate change working group. And this was a cross-party group, so there'll be a member from each party on that group. Um, as we developed that, and I really pushed for resources, so we now have a principal climate change officer who works full-time. It was a fixed-term contract. It's now a permanent contract. And we have a school's climate change officer. And I think we're also looking to get a project officer to look at funding for some of the projects that are, are being developed around this. Um, and then some of our sustainable transport team are also kind of linked into this as well. And there's also a big organisational push throughout the council for all officers and staff to have carbon literacy training and things like that. But those things only really came from that declaration. After about two years, it got to the point where the working group was starting to make such big decisions. For example, we were looking at procuring all our vehicles that could use HVO bulb fuel instead of diesel and things like that. Such big decisions that we needed more expertise around the room. We needed it to be given more precedence. And certainly myself, and I'll certainly shout out to Councillor Nick Sanford from the Lib Dems, pushed and asked for that. Um, and when that committee was, you know, with the Conservatives was agreed to be created, you know, I certainly put my interest in as chair, particularly because I've got links with the Green Party, so I can go back and get the research and information. Um, but we've had um, an, a numerous reports presented now. So we've looked at a local area energy plan, which looks at how to decarbonise homes and houses with heat pumps and solar panels and things like that. Um, we've had a flood management risk strategy come through. We've got a biodiversity strategy coming through the committee. Um, and I made sure that we co-opted, we put out, you know, because we had some independent co-opted members. So we've got um, the, the assistant principal from the university. We've got the director of PECT on there. And we've also got uh, the head of Sustrans on our committee, the cycling charity. Um, and we've also got two youth council representatives that come and they make they make some really good contributions and ask questions during the committee. But what it really does is highlight the importance of climate change and the environment. Um, and it gives it much more precedence at the council. And it's only a team I can see developing in the future, particularly when we need... So a lot of the effects of climate change are baked in. So the things like the floods we saw, the heat waves we saw this summer, we are going to have to cope with them. So one of the things that the Climate Change Committee will be looking at is a report on flooding and heat waves and how there can be an action plan to mitigate the effects of those heat waves and floods that we are going, unfortunately, we are going to be seeing more of those kind of events. The Council aims to meet net zero targets by 2030. Um, I think there was a report, I think it was in the local area energy plan, which said that the costs of that were somewhere in the region of £8.8 .8 billion. Pounds. I'll put the same question to you that I put to Councillor Fitzgerald when he joined us on the podcast. Do you think that's a realistic target? I think that when I put my declaration in in 2019, it very much wanted both the Council and the citywide to be carbon neutral by 2030. We think with a lot of the work we've done on the council that we're pretty confident that we can do that as a council and its functions by 2030. But things like a mass retrofitting programme not only need government funding, but it's not just right for the government to say, oh, which I think they announced say we can give you know, another billion pounds to this warm home scheme, we can give another 60 billion to this. Because actually we've got to look at the apprenticeship and skills base we don't have that apprenticeship and skills space. Now, there's some light on the horizon because there is going to be a green skills centre built at PRC, Peterborough Regional College, uh, which will start to train up people with those retrofitting skills. Uh, but of course, 8.8 .8 billion. Now, remember, that's not over a set period of time. That's not over a year or two years. That could be over a very long period of time. But those are some of the costings that we've estimated that will be needed to bring the citywide down to 
net zero carbon by 2030. But we've got to put the skills in first. I mean, look, at the end of the day with these targets, we're trying to meet them. But actually, there might be an overshoot, particularly with citywide, because we've needed to see changes far faster than we have. Governments have not reacted, certainly not here and not around the world, quickly enough in terms of adapting. Um, there's, a, there's a movement uh, called deep, uh, it's a deep adaptation movement, how deeply we need to adapt as local communities to mitigate against the effects of climate change. And actually, we need to draw down that funding from government. There need to be a, a lot more pots of money available. But what I will say is by putting all these strategies and action plans in place and beginning to work to those things, we as a local community and the best thing that we can build resilience is, is by having a strong local community and local council functions that know all about this so that we can be as protected as we can. So it's really difficult that, for example, as we were talking earlier, we haven't got lots of greens in government because that policy would be coming through. Um, so yeah, I sometimes find myself between a rock and a hard place. But actually, yeah, the citywide target, it is looking unlikely for 2030. It might be 2035, 2040. And yes, 8.8 .8 billion is a lot of money. But remember, during COVID, we found, you know, we found globally, 27 trillion, we found globally to tackle the effects of COVID. So there are, things can become available when you really need them. The trouble is with the climate crisis, you cannot leave it till too late. I mean, already it's too late. The council currently has debts in excess of £450 million, uh, needs to close a budget deficit of over £20 million for the next financial year. When he was on this podcast, Councillor Fitzgerald bemoaned the fact that opposition councillors are always critical of the decisions the council makes to try and eliminate that deficit, but never offer any concrete suggestions as to where cuts should be made. If you were running the council, how would you be getting it back onto a sound financial footing? Okay, so I've been part of a lot of the financial sustainability working group meetings. And just to say, this is really historic. So there's been a lot of borrowing going on. And it's not, you know, things that we probably shouldn't have been doing historically. And as a Green that's never served on the Cabinet, I've never been part of those those decisions or of what's happened in the past. So I sort of, you know, it was very interesting when SIPFA, uh, the Centre for financial associations came in and they started to write reports on what's been going wrong with the council because before that from council meetings i thought that we were good value a good a good uh value for money council that's what we were being told at the time by that particular finance uh, cabinet lead and so it was quite shocking to then realize the extent you know obviously as a small party we were never part and parcel of any of those discussions and we didn't realize the extent to which the council were in trouble i think a big issue is the way that we procure our services we've had some procurement arrangements that haven't been great for us we have to look at you know how we're transforming services so how can we do things differently without cutting services on the front line uh, to communities and to people um, and, there's, and there's a lot of work that can be done around that there's some work that can be done around automation so for example ampr cameras in car parks that can, you know, pool resources and, and, and money for fees and parking and charges. I have to say, though, that in the FSGW talks, I'm, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say about this, but it is looking positive that we will, and we've actually worked really collaboratively, and the Greens have been very much involved in working collaboratively with the Conservatives, with Labour and the Lib Dems and the Independents to help to watch the progress or to monitor the progress and help offer suggestions and ideas of how we can, so for example, electric vehicle charging points, I think that was a Lib Dem opposition suggestion, uh, which we're going to start charging for our electric vehicle charging points and 
uh, things like that. But I think, you know, there are ways to make savings and we're almost there and we're nearly balancing the budget, which from a 21 million deficit was really difficult. So, yes, it's a really difficult question for me because whilst I don't agree with a lot of decisions that have been made in the past, which have maybe put us in this position, I also recognise that the best thing for the residents is that we work together to make sure as councillors to make sure that we are bringing that deficit down. There's also an issue that when there was a point in time when the council tax wasn't raising incrementally per year and the local council were taking grants from the Conservative government to keep council tax low, it meant that over the years council tax didn't go up as it should have. So when we've had to jump like last year from two, you know, to 2.99% rise, it hit a lot of people hard when actually in comparison to other councils, we weren't putting up that council tax incrementally. So it, And it's really difficult times. I mean, these are decisions that will you know, affect residents. However, I have to say that the savings that are being made are much more about transformation of the way that we operate as a council as opposed to cutting frontline services. And I've had meetings with directors individually on this issue as well. I've been working closely with another Green who's a finance lead, at Zoe Nicholson in Lewis District Council. She's my mentor and she runs the finance there. Um, I'm working closely with my Green Group to work out, you know, where our position on the, on the budget is. But we've been very much part of not only offering budget ideas, but talking about savings um, as well. Now, do you back the council tax going up by 5% next year? Uh, that's not something I've discussed with my group. I think it's going to be really difficult with the cost of living crisis. Um, that's something I need to go away to my group and discussed, yes, there is legislation that that can actually happen. Um, I'm trying to find out from our finance lead, the council, whether that's something that we are actually going to consider. Are we going to do that? Um, I haven't been told yet or in the meetings. I haven't gleaned whether that is something we will be doing or whether that's a suggestion or whether that's completely out the window. It's really difficult for me because I think that's a huge hike in people's pockets at the moment. Um, during the cost of living crisis, which is already hitting people hard, uh, particularly those working class families in the city, and Peterborough is predominantly a working class city. So I'm not keen on that aspect of it, to be honest. You've been quite outspoken in your criticism of Paul Bristow's decision to announce the Great Northern Hotel as the location for hosting asylum seekers. His response on this podcast was that the people of the city aren't stupid and would soon have become common knowledge anyway. He has a point, doesn't he? Well, I don't think so. I think when the Home Office guidelines are that you don't reveal locations of uh, hotels that asylum seekers go to, wherever they may be located... Um, you don't reveal that. And then you're told by the Speaker of your house that you shouldn't reveal it either because people, MPs have been doing that, including Paul Bristow. I think that given that there were like almost, you know, almost terrorist attacks on a centre in Dover a few weeks before that, I think it's incredibly irresponsible to go around talking about that and talk about people coming in small boats and kind of using language that demonises those people before they even get a chance to even apply for asylum. I think that's wrong. I think it's it's disruptive. There were there was one comment following on from his comments on his Facebook post that said, oh, let's go down and drive them all out. And that's exactly the behaviour that he's inciting. And I don't think that that's acceptable. Um, I teach with refugee students and when I teach the power and conflict war poetry section, you know, I've had children from Syria and Afghanistan in tears. And when I talk to them, I take them outside the class and talk to them. And it's it, 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 those poems 
make my students remember how awful and they just say how awful and terrible it was and they were fleeing for their lives and I think you know given that you know a large an overwhelming majority of asylum seekers that do claim asylum here have got a right to be here and the Green Party very much believe that asylum seekers should have a safe right of passage you know nobody should be coming over here in the English Channel a treacherous channel in a dinghy um, whether they're women, men, children, whoever, we've seen enough drownings, um, and, and that is the Green Party party policy. And I absolutely back that one hundred percent. And I actually, I do think what Paul Bristow is doing is irresponsible. These are human beings at the end of the day. Is a hotel right at the gateway to the city the right place to be used, though? Well, what's the difference between you know asylum seekers being in a hotel and any other ordinary person being in a hotel what do we think they're going to all be congregating and intimidating rail passengers um, i'm sure they won't be i'm sure they'll just want security and some safety and they'll be accessing services to move them on as quickly as possible they are ordinary citizens human beings like anyone else um whether they whether the hotel faces a train station or whether it's in... And, and, and what are we saying? Oh, well, it should be somewhere in Eastfield. What are we saying about that community? I think we're starting to, you know, go along some really dodgy territory here about what we're saying is acceptable, where in what parts of our city we should be welcoming to people that are fleeing persecution. If they were any other minority group, what would we be saying? As you just mentioned, as well as being a counsellor, you also work in the city as a teacher. Peterborough has long struggled towards the bottom of national educational league tables. Why do you think that is and how can things be turned around? I think that's partly a funding issue. So we have the needs of a London borough with our diverse communities that we have, but we don't actually get the funding um, from the government that would uh, reflect that fact. Having said that, Certainly the Green Party and myself do not believe in the league tables. We don't believe that schools should be pitted against each other. Um, we think the league, I personally, and, and so do the Green Party, think that education is too narrow. It focuses on science, maths and English. Education should be holistic. We should be, you know, focusing on dance, drama, construction. And education is about a rounded human being and a child that comes out the end of that prepared to go on to the next challenge in their life. Uh, not a data set used by the government to, you know, an Ofsted often to criticise or critique what teachers are doing in every school. I mean, my secondary English team, my school that I work at, um, is one of the second best performing schools in English in in Peterborough. Um, so, you know, but I've worked at difficult, uh, at more challenging schools that have faced a lot of difficulties, and I work just as hard, if not harder, to do raise the standards there. But whose standards are these, and what we, what are we really equipping equipping our children to be? I mean, given they've got to go on and face some of the climate crisis and challenges we face, we need to be, uh, we need to have, for example, a GCSE in politics. So more and more. Children are coming out of school knowing what politics is all about and knowing how important it is. We need to make sure that there's holistic education so children get options, you know, like art, dance, drama, uh, food tech, construction. So many of those subjects subjects have been squeezed because we are focusing on league tables all the time. And you'll find the schools that bend with the willows, they do really well, but then when it changes again, they have to work out what strategies to put in place. That's not good for children. We need holistic holistic education in every school for children and I would actually argue that you know I think children in Peterborough 
you know, are given a good education. And you can imagine the number of children here now, the amount of skills we're going to have in this city, the amount of children that will know several languages that will go off to university that have become part of our society you know, it is immense. I mean, I do think and um, one thing that got me into politics was when I became a teacher, that I didn't think that the English curriculum leaned very much towards working class children. Um, and that's, I kept saying to my head of English, now, this isn't great for working class children. She went, well, you need to get into government to change that because government set all the exam papers. I mean, you look at the Michael Gove reforms, a, te- a subject like English, which was 40% coursework and now and 60% exam is now 100% exam. Not all students perform well in exams. Some like the coursework elements of it. So we really need to have an education that reflects our modern world. I mean, why can't a child do an essay and email it to their teacher? Why do we have to sit down with a pen and paper in a in a sterile exam room? I mean, what's that testing? Is it a test of memory and is that a test of intelligence? So I've got a lot of questions around education. I could talk about you talk about it for a long time. You recently attended the Reclaim the Night 2022 event organised by Peterborough Rape Crisis. How safe a city is Peterborough? I never feel frightened in Peterborough, but it was shocking to see the candles that were laid out, that there's been 1,044 women access the rape, Peterborough Rape Service, and actually that's just the people that have accessed the service. So there are obviously areas where where women or, you know, situations in which women are very vulnerable, and it was great to meet um, the organisers of the Peterborough Rape Service. I'll certainly be going to their offices and uh, one of my uh, tremendous colleagues called Amelia Womack um, in the Green Party. Amelia was the deputy leader up until very recently, and she has run a very long running campaign against misogyny, and she wants to make misogyny a hate crime. And I think that has something to do with our culture and our stereotypical perceptions of what it means to be male and female. And I actually, you know, there's absolutely no excuse for violence or sexual violence or assault against women at all whatsoever in current society so obviously I actually personally feel safe in Peterborough I have had some occasions when I was a younger woman that I didn't feel safe Um, so I can see why there's vulnerabilities for people the lack of police is, is really worrying you know we need far more police officers out on the beat to make people feel safe um and that isn't always the case so yeah and we and we really need some education uh, among young men and young women to, to ensure that we eradicate this type of sexual violence against women. We've seen protests taking place in Cambridge after they looked at plans to introduce a congestion charge into the city centre. Is that something the council should be looking at introducing into Peterborough? Uh, that's an interesting one. We have discussed that in um, the budget groups as well as in our climate change groups. Um do we have a congestion charge? We feel at the moment that we don't have the level of congestion that Cambridge actually does, and therefore it might not be worth it. But I think in future, as we get more and more cars on the road, that it should be something that we look at. We're looking instead at another idea that's called the workplace parking levy, whereby you pay people that want to park at work in the town centre, you charge people for doing that. Nottingham City Council did that and they raised about I think it was about four million and they put that towards a public trans service. So, you know, there is possibilities to put some of those ideas in place. But at the moment, we feel that it works particularly well in Cambridge because it has the congestion of the capital city for such um, a small city. So not at the moment, but it is something that we're exploring. 
You've spent time recently on the picket lines with striking workers, with nurses, railway workers, public and civil servants and university lecturers already having strikes announced, and junior doctors, ambulance workers and teachers potentially joining them depending on the results of balloting. Are we heading for a second winter of discontent? Potentially, and I think this is all about paying conditions, um, hasn't it? And, um, you know, the Green Party really believes that we, you know, we can't stand by and watch right people's rights, people, workers' rights be eroded. And at the recent Green Party's autumn conference, we voted to support the repeal of the UK's anti-trade union laws. At the moment, our country has some of the worst restrictive laws in the Western world, which includes allowing agency workers to be used to break strikes. That's actually what's happening at the Royal Mail at the moment with CWU. Now, our conference agreed that the law should facilitate workplace democracy and trade union activity. It shouldn't restrain and outlaw it. And we've resolved to oppose any new anti-union or anti-strike regulations that restrains unions and their members. Um, we've also called for a positive charter of workers and trade union rights that enshrines the rights to organise and strike. Uh, these policies will form part of the party's next general election manifesto, and we support a general strike. We think that now is the time, enough is enough. I mean, we've seen chaos at our government level uh, with our leaders. Um, we've seen Liz, Liz Trust come in with unfunded economic policies that has pushed people's mortgages up, nearly completely you know, nearly destroyed the pensions funds in this country. Workers deserve fair paying conditions. The whole CWU strikes do come about because the post office was privatised. It should never have been. It was undervalued. It was privatised. Um, and, and the Green Party are standing shoulder to shoulder with workers and we would support a general strike. It's about time the government sat up and listened um, and those companies that are not giving workers the right paying conditions really listen to what workers are saying. Um, I mean, my dad was a milkman. I came from a working class background. I grew up in Orton Goldhay in, in Hinchcliffe and my dad wasn't in a union. And I know that he suffered in the last few years of his life as a milkman when he when he had to work up until retirement, you know, because it was physically exhausting, mentally exhausting. And he didn't have any rights and he didn't have he didn't withdraw his labour at any point and neither did his colleagues. And therefore, you know, he had a very difficult few year, last few years of, of his of his work. Peterborough and Cambridgeshire Green councillors have been calling for the county's bus network to be brought into public ownership. Uh, recent budget documents for the combined authority showed that delivering the network as it is will cost £7 million, double the £3.5 million budgeted. At a time when all budgets are being squeezed to try and balance the books, is it feasible for the entire network to be brought back under public control? I think it is feasible. And I think when you think about it, we talk about money and how much it would cost. When you think about that, there was £90 million returned from the mayor's office back to central government because we didn't have the, the infrastructure in place to to be able to deliver on the warm homes that the money was for. So, I mean, if we're turning, returning £90 million, uh, because we can't deliver on something, I think to actually put something in place, you know, when you find that services are privatised, you often find that, you know, just like we found with the rail, just like we found with our gas, electricity, that that... Privatisation, it means that the, the money that goes back, the profits, don't go back into improving and increasing services and, and making that service better so more people use it. It actually goes into the shareholders' pockets. And so it isn't something that belongs to the people. Uh, we have the same with our water companies and our energy companies. So actually, um, with a service like the buses, which you know are looking at being cut, we should um, invest in bringing those buses back into public ownership. 
there would be a better bus network, it would better service the people and it would be affordable. Um, and I do think it's something that we should aim for. What are your views on the redevelopment of the embankment? Um, as the Green Party, we have policy that states that people living, uh, people should be able to live 15 minutes to an open green space or to some form of nature or um, or something of that sort. Um, the embankment is the last largest open remaining green space in the city centre. It's used for some historical events like the Bridge Fair. That's been coming for 300 years to the embankment. There are lots of flats, particularly with flatting keys. You've got St Mary's Court flats. You've got the flats behind the BP garage, the houses. You've got Bishop's Road. Those people will not have a, an open green space near to them if we then build on that embankment. And you can say you can push it as far bare back as you like, and there'll still be a bit of green space. But of course, you've got to think about parking, you know, a 25,000 seater arena, you then, you know, that whole area we are, we are concerned as greens will become um, a concrete jungle. We're not saying that we don't think that it should be developed in some way in terms of keeping it as a green space, but putting some more amenities on it, a park, making the area more biodiverse. Uh, but we think it's utilised for some historic events, uh, Peterborough Beer Festival. It used to be utilised when I was younger and singing in bands, um, the Willow Festival. Um, and we think it should remain as an open, diverse space. Um, we don't think really that the Peterborough United have really any right to take that space that is protected in our local plan away from the city. Uh, there are far more people in the city than Peterborough United fans. Whatever your views are on that, I have thought about it, and I think that if there was a stadium built on the other side of the parkway, that wouldn't be so bad. Um, but actually, you know, there are lots of people living in flats that don't have gardens around that space, and I think we need to retain that space. And we'd like to finish the podcast with some quickfire questions. So if you had control of the council tomorrow, what are the first three changes that you'd make? Oh, um that's really hard actually um well i make sure that it's opposition groups leading the council so we'd work with the lib dems labor and potentially the independents uh, and make sure we are running the cabinet and we are uh, and maybe running the chairs or the chairs might be the opposition group i would make sure that we expand our climate change team we've only got two full-time staff there at the moment i think this is an area of work uh, that's particularly close to my heart and I think we need more people working on that over a period of time to make sure our city um, is resilient. The third thing I think I would do is try to make the city centre uh, more accessible um, in term and bring more attractions to it, so more arts and leisure and cultural attractions. I'd love to see, for example, some elements of Flagfen being moved into the city centre, just like you've got the Jorvik Viking Museums. I'd like to see, um, went, went to the city centre on, I went on Saturday evening and there was the light show at the cathedral and town was absolutely packed. You couldn't park. So many families were there. And those are the things, as our retail trade ceases, those are the things that we will need to have in our city centre. Um, and the final thing is, my real goal for Peterborough would to become a net carbon, carbon city would be to work with the university, the Green Skills Centre, and to create a, and to make Peterborough a research manufacturing hub base, so that we're actually leading and we're servicing other areas of the country with these net zero carbon technologies. That is my that would be my main focus. What constitutes a success for the Greens at the next local election? Uh, at the moment, it would be to uh, retain all three councillors and to come a second place in another secret war that I'm not going to tell you about. <laughs> 
What's been your biggest success as a counsellor to date? Um, oh, that's that's difficult, actually, because there are some things in the local community that I've done that I really, really like. But I, rec- I really think, I mean, I came in, first of all, council meeting was to declare a climate emergency. And now we have a climate change committee and environment committee that I chair where papers are coming through that. And we're seeing that at another level now. So, but then again... Equally, I would say that creating a community garden space with Up the Garden Bath was also just as fulfilling in terms of resident engagement and community engagement. So when you're a councillor, you straddle between both those things, what you do on a citywide level for the whole city, but also what you, you do in your community. And sometimes it's hard to say that's better than the other because both have great outcomes. What's one place in your ward that you would recommend the people of Peterborough should visit? Part of our ward is Fairy Meadows, so definitely go and visit Fairy Meadows. I like all of our wards for different reasons. Um, Autumn Waterville Village is lovely. It's a historic village uh, with the Windmill Pub in, so go and visit the Windmill Pub. Um, Autumn Gate Centre, um, it's getting, it, it, when I grew up in Autumn, it was a full centre, lots of thriving shops, sort of in the 80s. Um, and now, there are more and more units coming in. There's sort of outside area. It's done the same sort of thing as Sainsbury's in Breton where they've got outside shops. So it's become more car parking focused. We quite like to see the Orton Centre become a bit more focused again on the in, on the interior area of the shops and be a bit fuller and, and sort of have it back to its former glory when it had things like greengrocers and butchers. Um, but I know those things, given the, the large corporate supermarkets are a thing of the past, but it would be nice to see more localised food economy again. It would make us more resilient in the face of climate crisis. So come and visit. Finally, what's one piece of advice that would you would give to anyone considering standing as a local councillor? Never ask for permission. Just go and do things. When you know you want to do something, you know, get advice. I mean, get advice from your colleagues or your party, which I've always done. I've always gone, we've got a climate change officer and we've got lots of very, very experienced Greens I've gone back to and got ideas from. And then, I, as I say, I, I passed a climate, well, I helped to pass a climate declaration at my first full council meeting. And I just knew that I wanted to do it. Um, and I am mentoring some other councillors that are not sure, you know, should we do that? You just do it. Just say you're going to do it and do it. <laughs> That's what I think. And you can make things happen. You really can. So just make them happen. Councillor Day, thank you for joining me on the politics of Peterborough. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to Councillor Day for joining us. You can follow her on Twitter at NicolaDay78. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts so that you get each episode as soon as it's released. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PoliticsPBORO. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show, or any questions you'd like us to put to our guests, you can email us at politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. This episode of The Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted, recorded and edited by me. We'll see you next time.